0: In Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I was reading something from Larry Rosenberg's book um, about mindfulness of breathing and uh, today and in, in one sentence he sort of sums up the essence of practice which is to overcome, how to overcome the ignore in ignorance, and so you might notice that in our daily life and sitting practice, that the real hurdle in practice is that we, out of habit, we ignore so much of what's going on in any given moment. It's almost like the mind has a filter, and it it just assumes that 99 percent of what's arising and passing in the moment is not of, there's really not much to learn from it. So it just filters it out. And then whatever it does focus on, whatever it does know, it immediately takes that moment of knowing and turns it into a concept. So it interprets that moment of experience and creates a concept to represent that experience. And then, as you probably have seen in your own mind, generally speaking, one concept, one moment of thinking, leads to another moment of thinking, and another moment, and another moment, and on and on like that. So practice is uh, how to relate, how to be in a moment where we're not ignoring how it is. And so lately I've been talking about mindfulness as one of the eight steps in the Buddha's eightfold path. So he laid out the path of awakening, the path that he said anybody who's going to have deep insight, whether they're a Buddhist or it doesn't matter who or what you are, that the the basic path of a human heart gaining understanding, developing understanding, it unfolds in a particular way. And he described it in eight terms, but you could, of course, describe it any number of ways, probably. But it would probably involve the same process of moving from ignoring to not ignoring. You know, not seeing to seeing. And so lately I've been talking about the path of mindfulness. And uh, in the past few weeks, I've talked about mindfulness of the body, which includes the five physical senses. And then the other places the Buddha emphasized establishing mindfulness have to do with the mind. So he talks about four foundations, or four establishments, of mindfulness that we cultivate. Mindfulness of the body, sensation, Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and then mindfulness of the mind, and specifically mindfulness of feeling tone, the presence of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither pleasantness nor unpleasantness, which we often call neutrality, and then mindfulness of the mind, which I've been talking about just the last couple of weeks, and then in the future I'll talk about mindfulness. Sometimes it's translated as mind objects, which doesn't really help much. But it's, I think, best understood as mindfulness of how the mind, where the mind is leading. Is it skillful or unskillful? So in terms of mindfulness of mind, probably the easiest way to get a handle on what that means in in a very direct way is we're simply learning to see the mind as a natural phenomenon. Almost always when there's something going on in our mind and we know that it's going on, immediately there's a sense that that's me, that's mine, that's my thought, or that's me thinking that thought, or me having that mind state. So to even begin this contemplation, mindfulness of mind, We have to be able to um, have enough confidence that the mind can be seen as an object, just as a phenomenon. Whatever mood, whatever content, whatever flavor or filter in the mind, it's just something being known. This is a pretty radical change in how we relate to the mind. We're almost always relating to the mind as me or mine instead of just as something being known. So we're not knowing the mind to judge it or to fix it because that we understand. Like anger is in my mind And I see it, and because it's my anger, because there's an identification with the anger, then of course I want to fix it if I'm somebody who thinks anger is bad. Or if there's something beautiful in my mind, like if there's a lot of gratitude in my mind, then I might take a hold of it like, boy, I'm I'm a really beautiful person because I'm sitting here with a lot of gratitude. And so the identification... uh, creates a burden so how is it that we can have a mind state and see it as just something like a phenomena how is that possible to see a mind state as a natural phenomena as something happening in the moment probably the biggest the the most important first step is just to hold that as a possibility. I mean, just to actually look at the mind. And not to be afraid to make a mess of it. In a way, we don't even necessarily know where to look. Like, where is the mind? How do we notice the mind? How do we even get a sense of what the content or qualities that are present in the mind? So there's an important trick to this. And and I really advise people to use the trick. (laughs) Because otherwise, this part of practice, being mindful of the mind, it's really messy. And it tends to create a lot of confusion and uh, just more delusion. So the trick is don't, don't intentionally look at the mind, at least not initially. What we can do instead is really emphasize mindfulness of body like the breath, of course, as an anchor and be very intentional about connecting and sustaining attention with the breath and lo and behold, it won't be long before some quality in the mind, some happening in the mind interrupts the attention to the breath or the attention to the body the sensations in the body or to hearing you know, you'd be just sitting here at common ground, listening to the traffic, driving by, maybe a few birds, maybe people moving or breathing, and all of a sudden, you might notice judgment. And then, in that moment, there's a knowing, judgment is like this. And we have this opportunity to understand that judging is just as much a natural phenomena arising in the moment as anything else. It's just something that's come into being, come into existence due to certain causes and conditions, and will pass away. But that's not going to happen. That realization or insight will not happen if we're just caught up in our thinking, even though we may be judging. Because we didn't have that moment of being with the breath and then noticing the judging, there's no contrast. It's being lost in thought, lost in thought, lost in thought, lost in thought. There's no insight there. So the big trick is to give ourselves wholly. It takes a a wholeheartedly. We have to um, inspire ourselves, generate some real uh, resolve to be with the breath, to be with sensation in the body, to be with sound, things that are more neutral, less seductive than thinking, to get really grounded and to have some moments of continuity, a few seconds, a few moments of just being grounded in the body in a non-conceptual way. So we're, for a few moments at least, relatively, if not completely free of the influence of self-centered thinking. So we're just... Experiencing that touching as the breath comes in or the expansion of the belly as the breath comes in or the contraction and that kind of bare attention or, or quality of presence creates the conditions that if a strong mind state arises then that bare attention to the breath in a very simple nimble way can turn to being bare attention of the mind state non-delusion, non-confusion with the sensations of the breath, and then that that strong mind state arises, then there's that same non-confusion, their attention, with thinking, with mind as mind. And that that's a very powerful moment. If you talk to people who've been practicing for a while, and you ask them about, you know, important moments in their practice, Likely they're, they're talking about, well, I was just listening to the sound of the bird and then, boom, I saw something or I understood something that I hadn't seen or understood before. But it wasn't about the bird so much or the sound of the bird, but the stillness and the intimacy and the quality of presence with that sound or with the breath or with the body, that moment of concentration, of unification, clarity of mind, created a beautiful opportunity to see something when something else arose in that stillness. So the mind is very still and clear and non-diluted, not putting any spin on anything. And then when some habit, mental habit, comes up, then it's being seen in all that clarity, with all that clarity, all that non-distortion. And then there's understanding that arises from that clarity. Oh, that's not me, you know, judging. Let's say judging comes up. That's not me judging, it's just judging. You know, we hear this so often in Buddhist practice about not taking the thoughts personally. Like Joseph Goldstein says sometimes on retreat, one of the teachers, one of the well-known teachers in the... Vipassana tradition, or insight meditation tradition, he often says, you can always relate to thoughts, the thoughts in your mind, as if somebody had left a radio on. So it's impersonal. It's just like things arising, background noise, in a sense. But but the question is, well, how do we have that relationship with thought, that impersonal, uh, non-judging? non-interfering relationship to our thoughts. Well, it has to, at least in the beginning stages of practice, it really comes when we've cultivated that stillness, that non-conceptual way of being in the moment, with some easier object, like breathing, or sensation, or sound, or moving, if you're doing walking meditation practice. Those kinds of experiences are relatively easy to develop a complete, open, simple presence. So we're not interpreting, not judging, not thinking about the experience, but just feeling the leg moving, feeling the breath coming in, hearing the sound. One way to think about it is just creating a receptive quality of mind. Last week, I think in the Wednesday group, I read this passage from Bhante Gunaratna's book, Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness. And in his chapter on mindfulness of mind, he talks about this. I'll just read a couple sentences from this section. Thus, the more you focus on mind itself, the less solid it seems. Like everything else that exists, it is always changing. Moreover, you discover there is no permanent entity, no one running the movie projector. All is flux, all is flow, all is process. In reality, who you are is simply this constant flow of changing moments of mind. Since you cannot control this process, you have no choice but to let go. In letting go, you experience joy, and you taste for an instant, an instant, the freedom. And happiness that is the goal of the Buddhist path then you know that this mind can be used to gain wisdom so the relevant question here is what's let go of so he says since you cannot control this process you have no choice but to let go so again just go back to that sort of how I set that up so we're just sitting let's say in meditation practice Let's just say we have a few moments of continuity of awareness with the breath so if you're feeling the breath in the belly, it might mean that you're just feeling the abdominal wall expanding. doesn't mean you're thinking about abdominal wall. It doesn't mean that there's the word abdominal wall in the mind. It just means that movement is present, that there's a knowing of movement and a, uh, an awareness of movement as the exhalation, as the contraction happens. So there's just the awareness of movement that simple, direct, non-judging presence with this physical phenomena of movement in the belly or touching at the nostrils, if you're feeling the breath here. And then a thought, a strong thought, a thought with some punch arises in the mind. And then in that moment, we can have the opportunity to see that the mind is just flux <clears throat> because in the moment preceding the moment of the mind state arising <clears throat> there was no sense of mark right in a very ordinary sense it's not some radically you know different state of mind it's just a simple state of mind that we all touch probably not every day, pretty often we touch we don't necessarily recognize these moments, but just just the moment of doing and nothing more. And then when the thought arises in that moment, it's seen in that light. We actually see it coming into existence. So what is the moment before judgment? And then all of a sudden judgment arises and we see how it arises not because mark is judging something. Because it arises due to impersonal causes and conditions, we understand, right in that moment of seeing it, we understand it's not Mark who's judging. That that moment of judgment arising in the mind is different or independent from the sense of Mark. It doesn't need a sense of Mark. It's just arising due to causes and conditions. And it also passes away due to causes and conditions. So when Bhante Gunaratna talks about the inevitability of letting go, <clears throat> what he, I think what he means here is that the causes for identification aren't there when the mind is clear. So when the judgment arises, you know, the thought like, you know, he shouldn't have said that to me, or why did he say that? Why did our president say this? You know, or why did my spouse or partner say this to me? You know, what was she thinking? So there's some kind of judgment there. But when it arises in that empty, that mind empty of self-centeredness, so we're just with the breath, then that there's no uh, sense of self to claim that thought. So it arises as an impersonal phenomena, a natural, but impersonal phenomena. And that's called insight, because we start to have a brief, simple experience of thought being impersonal, meaning it's not Mark who's judging his partner. It's just judgment arising, and that judgment is arising because certain causes and conditions have been set in motion and in this moment the conditions were right for it to arise as this mind state or as this thought so what happens is in a sense we're letting go or we're not creating identification there, there's no identification with the mind state and this is really important because freedom or enlightenment doesn't mean that judging doesn't happen in the mind, or aversion doesn't happen, or greed doesn't happen. The growing freedom that people experience in the practice is that we're not identifying with those mind states when they come on. This is the real fruit or value of practicing mindfulness of mind. It's one of these amazing things. You know, we live every moment of our waking life we're living with mind. I mean, if so much of our existence is the experience of mind. But how many of us have systematically undert- uh, undertaken the study of mind? I mean, it almost sounds a little strange, the way I'm talking, you know, that we should actually be interested in how it is that various mind states, moods, thoughts, how it is that they come into the mind. So there's a kind of arrogance that we know already. Whether well, my thoughts, <laughs> you know, why should I look? It's my judgment. You know, it's my gratitude. It's my whatever. We don't have that uh, humility or that sense of like we're just beginners in terms of understanding our predicament as a human being with a mind. We have so much surety or confidence in our delusion. <laughs> and, of course, it's like a house of cards. And I think on some maybe unconscious level, we know it's a house of cards. And we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to take a too close of a look because we're afraid that whatever stability we have in our life might fall apart if we start to look a little, a little bit more deeply. There's a wonderful book you can either purchase or uh, just get off of the internet. It's available in PDF form on the internet. It's um, Bhikkhu Bodhi's book called The Noble Eightfold Path, The Way to the End of Suffering. It's a little bit of a formal presentation, but it's very thorough. And he includes, uh, he really writes directly from the discourses of the Buddha. So he takes a little bit of some talk the Buddha gave and then sort of translates it and sort of uh, flushes it out of it. So this is his section on the contemplation of the state of mind, or mindfulness of mind. He says, To understand what is entailed by this contemplation, it is helpful to look at the Buddhist conception of the mind. Usually we think of the mind as an enduring faculty, remaining identical with itself throughout the succession of experiences. So it seems like the mark that is here right now is the mark that was here when we opened the center in 1993, and even the mark that went to high school back in the early 70s. It seems like the same mark. Though experience changes the mind which undergoes the changing experience seems to remain the same perhaps modified in certain ways but still retaining its identity however in the buddhist in the buddhist teaching in the buddhist teaching the notion of a permanent mental organ is rejected the mind is regarded not as a lasting subject of thought feeling and volition but as a sequence of momentary mental acts each distinct and discrete their connections with one another causal rather than substantial. So it's not that you know our understanding as we practice in the way that the Buddha taught, it's not that he's saying the mind when I was seventeen is not is unrelated to the mind now at forty eight. Clearly there is a causal relationship between the mind that existed then and the mind that exists now. But it's a causal relationship, as opposed to some permanent, non-changing entity. And this is what we can see moment to moment. This isn't just a philosophical distinction. It actually has real significance if we can uh, come into the experience of this. So much of the the, um, impulse towards defensiveness and fear and craving arises from this sense of a permanent self as opposed to a processed self so the buddha never tried to make this argument it isn't so much that there isn't a self but we want to understand what the self is and what it isn't we want to clarify the understanding of self or what we call mark or what we call this happening here this mind happening so it's it's perfectly fine to say there's a self here but it's not okay to assume we know what that is or it's not okay to assume out of habit th- that the self is some permanent entity we should actually the Buddha suggests we should actually check it out and see what it is directly in our experience so a little bit later in this section Bhikkhu Bodhi says so, the, before I can go on, I just want to say the word chitta means mind or heart. And it often refers to a particular mind state. Like a chitta is a mind state. So chitta doesn't refer to some permanent thing like my mind. Because its mind state is particular to each moment. Does that make sense? Because it's, even that word my mind suggests that there's something continuous. So, it's better to understand the mind as mind moments or mind states. There's a mind state now. This mind state now is related to my mind state ten minutes ago. But it's a completely different happening, this mind state right now. And as the attention becomes more subtle, we really see how moments change. I remember times when my mind was quieter, like on a long retreat, and I'd be taking a walk. I can remember these moments quite clearly where I'd be just walking and uh, there'd be a moment of knowing and then there'd be another moment of knowing in the next moment. And even though that moment looked a lot like the preceding moment, there was a very distinct, clear sense that this moment was a completely different moment I know that sounds a little silly or kind of like so, <laughs> but as an actual experience, it's like uh, the actual the effect of the actual experience is this is a moment and then the next moment being known is like a completely different life. So when when there's the knowing of the next moment, there's an understanding that goes with that that this moment this experience, this existence in this moment, it's a different existence than the preceding one. It actually feels like a different life. It has that experience, like it's a rebirth. And that, and again, that's not a philosophical statement for me at times, it's an experience. And it just, it's not, you know, I'm not trying to, uh, Put too much weight on that experience except to suggest that we are projecting a continuity and we don't realize it. And actually, this process of arising and passing is quite profound and ongoing, moment to moment. It doesn't just happen when we physically, the body physically dies, and then there's a very distinct ending. But moment to moment, there's an ending. And we can even understand this intellectually. Because how do we go from one moment to the next? I mean, nobody in the room would argue that this moment is different than the preceding moment. But how do we actually get from one moment of experience which is different than the preceding moment? right? Is, that a, is it a continual changing, in which case it means that there never really is a moment because it's always changing? Or does one moment come in and then end? really end, disappear, in order for the next moment to be. So you understand that even as an intellectual exercise, we get how in order for there to be change, things have to radically end for something else to come into existence. And the more we develop the quality of attention, the refinement of attention, the more we begin to experience this. The more we begin to experience it, we have no choice, but as Bhante Gunaratna said in that section I read, the mind just lets go. What does it let go of? It lets go of identification, attachment, holding, gripping, grasping. It lets go of any of its sense of self-importance. Because the self-importance arises because we think there's some continuity to self. But the more we're living with this experience of, of self as process, it's really doesn't, it's not conducive to self-importance, self as process, self as change. It just isn't. So I want to read a little bit more from Bhikkhu Bodhi's book, if I can remember where I left off. Okay, so when a particular citta or mind state is present, it is contemplated. Merely as a citta, a mind state It is not identified with as I or mine Not taken as a self Or as something belonging to a self Whether it is a pure state of mind Or an unwholesome state of mind A lofty state or a low one There should be no elation or dejection Only a clear recognition of that state The state of mind, the state is simply noted then allowed to pass without clinging to the desired ones or resenting the undesired ones. And we really start to see this when we understand the mind and body, of course, as just this unfolding process. It undermines self-importance. And so it doesn't really matter, because even if something really unwholesome is coming into being, like a lot of greed or lust or a lot of hatred or anger, we understand, you know, it's just this ongoing process of change. And it will bloom into, you know, anger, and then it will fall apart, and something else will arise and change. And the reason we're afraid when depression or anger or greed comes in is that as a, from a point of view as a self, a permanent self, when it comes in, we think that defines who I am. Oh... I'm a bad person because I have a lot of lust or greed or I have a lot of irritation. But when we have a different understanding of self as process, it's not such a heavy thing when greed or anger comes in because we understand the naturalness or the lawfulness of it arising and that it will fall away in due time. It doesn't define any permanent entity. It's just a natural unfolding, just like bad weather blowing in. And then it will change, and it will be a beautiful day eventually. Then Bhikkhu Bodhi goes on in the last paragraph in this section to talk about how the practice unfolds as it deepens. He says, as contemplation deepens, so as the mindfulness of mind deepens, the contents of the mind becomes increasingly rarefied. The relevant flights of thought, imagination, and emotion subside. Mindfulness becomes clearer. The mind re- remains intently aware, watching its own process of becoming. At times, there might appear to be a persisting observer behind the process. But with continued practice, even this apparent observer disappears. The mind itself, the seemingly solid, stable mind, dissolves into a stream of chittas, mind states flashing in and out of being, moment by moment, coming from nowhere and going nowhere, yet continuing in sequence without pause. So it's just one thing leading to another. It's exactly how we understand things in a gross way, in a conventional way. But what we're doing is we're taking this sort of commonsensical understanding about how life unfolds, and we're seeing it directly, moment by moment, as also operating in the mind so uh, you know as a someone grounded in rationality or reason we can see that you know we see how things unfold around us in nature in human culture but we don't take that same sort of quality of investigation or interest curiosity and look and see how our mind is operating with those with that under those same laws basically of cause and effect, of conditional, of conditionality. understanding this um, this path, it's, it's it's really it comes down to being very simple. it of course as most of you know, it's really difficult because we have uh, we have a, a strong devotion to thinking. We really trust thinking. It's in a sense served us well in life. Our thinking, I mean, our thinking has even gotten us here to common ground and in interest in the teachings of the Buddha and other people who have cultivated awareness. So, clearly, their thinking has a, a purpose. It even has a purpose in dharma practice, in dharma practice. But it has real limitations. It like can bring us to practice, but once we begin practicing, it actually is a problem. This devotion to thinking or this dependence on thinking so there's this nice discourse or talk that the Buddha gave. This is a translation. It's a the way this one monk, he's a Westerner, but he translates in a little bit of a flowery way. But I'll just read it. Um, it's a really I like this passage a lot, and it's entitled "Beyond Faith." There is a way, practitioner, by which a practitioner, without recourse to faith, to cherished opinions, to tradition the specious reasoning to the approval of views pondered upon may declare the final knowledge of sainthood rebirth has ceased the holy life has been lived completed is the task and nothing more remains after this and which is it? herein practitioners a practitioner is seen, has seen a form with her eyes as if, And if greed, hate, or delusion are in her, she knows there is in me greed, hate, delusion. And if greed, hate, or delusion are not in her, she knows there is no greed, hate, delusion in me. Further practitioners, one has heard a, if one has heard a sound, smelled a odor, tasted a flavor, felt a tactile sensation, cognized a mental object, idea, and if greed, hate, or delusion are in him, he knows there is greed in me, hate, delusion in me. And if greed, hate, or delusion are not in him, he knows there is no greed, hate, delusion in me. If she knows that, if, if, and if she thus knows, O practitioners, are these ideas such as to be known by recourse to faith, to cherished opinion, to tradition, to the approval of views pondered upon? Certainly not, Lord. And are and these not are these not rather ideas to be known after wisely realizing them by experience? That is so, Lord. So in simpler terms, simpler words, I think what the Buddha is saying is that the way to have this understanding is through experience. It doesn't really do much good to hear it and to believe it but we want to actually see in our mind in any given moment whether greed, anger, or delusion is present or whether non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion is present. That was the homework I gave last week. And it's really important to, to be open to the possibility that you can see this directly in your mind. I remember so many times in my practice A wave of real uh, wholesome happiness arising when I could see a wholesome mind state as a wholesome mind state. Just have that clarity. This is a wholesome mind state. And the great happiness when I see an unwholesome mind state. And just know, without confusion, this is an unwholesome mind state. It is so transforming to have that simple moment of awareness. We're so often almost always confused or diluted by our mind. We're so in the habit of being in a reactive state to the mind. We don't have that stability and that quality of bare attention, that non-conceptual knowing. It's just rare. So when we have it, and we have it in a moment when a, a very strong or clear mind state is arising, it's a really powerful moment of insight to understand this is a mind state and it's like this and to discern, well, this is an unwholesome mind state meaning if there is identification it's going to lead to suffering of course, mindfulness of aversion isn't an unwholesome mind state but there's an understanding that if identification is allowed to arise this leads to suffering we just see it. It's, just a, it's like we get it in that moment. So for this week, we'll continue that practice of uh, seeing these three wholesome and three unwholesome roots. So seeing the force of greed and the opposite, generosity or simplicity or contentment. Seeing the force or habit, mind state of aversion and the opposite of kindness and acceptance and patience. Seeing the force of delusion, the cloudedness, the dullness, restlessness in the mind. And the opposite, that stability and clarity and sort of unflappable, unshakable quality, mirror-like quality in the mind. Just to get to know these six states and and then the additional part of the homework this week is to notice how knowing any of these six states, how it actually changes the mind. It sets something in motion. So when we really clearly see aversion notice how the clear seeing of aversion changes the mind. Because remember, I'm saying you know, there is, you know, we, have an, we're, we are having an experience. So in that sense, it's fine to designate that process of having an experience, give it a name. That's Mark. That's the process of being Mark, right? So how is it that Mark has the experience of suffering or happiness? Well, we want to understand how that suffering unfolds. And we begin to see that when there's mindfulness of aversion, we avoid suffering states. When there's not mindfulness of aversion, we fall into suffering. It's very clear. When there's mindfulness of wholesome states, those wholesome states are strengthened. When there's mindfulness of unwholesome states, they tend to be undermined and fall away more quickly. But we want to see it directly, how mindfulness of the mind, what it leads to. Is it is it a good thing to cultivate? Or is it a not good thing to cultivate? Is it something to take refuge in or not something to take refuge in? So I'll leave it here so we have time to check in with each other. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, maybe experiences from your own practice, mindfulness of mind, that you'd like to share with the group or any questions about the talk. I have a question. How does someone who is practicing mindfulness approach things, mind states, for years, like uh, grief and death, where it's it a well established uh, process, and people all acknowledge the fact that it, it has certain qualities and it lasts over a certain length of months. It. It's, it's actually a mind state that arises, and you can and it's predictable in that you know it'll, it's going to come up over and over again over a series of time. In fact, it's been ritualized mm-hmm. and, and very established. How does someone who's deep, pregnant, share of deal with a state they know is going to reoccur over and over again for uh, quite a long period of time? Did you hear Jim in the back? Well, I think the first thing we'd want to do is not assume that it's going to reoccur, just to keep an open mind, because we don't actually know if it's going to reoccur. Um, So part of the way we approach any moment of experience is with that not knowing. I mean, what we do know is that it is like this now, and and not to try not to bring anything else, uh, any other expectation. So it's like this now, and you know the basic practice of bare attention or mindfulness is it's in the service of intimacy. So um, there are thoughts and images associated with that feeling of grief with the sort of visceral or energetic quality of grief in the body, in the mind. And uh, the, the practice is not to push away the images or the thoughts, the story, but not to be confused by it. And the, the, what I mean by not being confused by it is to understand that the story, the words and images in the mind, that they're just words and images in the mind. They're just words and images being known here and now in the present moment. And this feeling, this visceral feeling maybe of weight or heaviness, or however it's being experienced, it's just what it is. It's just that experience of subtle or not so subtle sensation here, now, and it's like this. So the way a practitioner, someone devoted to this path of awareness, works with a strong, persistent mind state is... um, to invite it to be what it is, to let it be what it is, but not to add anything, not to expect it to be anything, and not to feel like there's anything to do except to bear attention. That's the hardest part with things like grieving, or even even more difficult in some ways, being with happiness and joy, is we think we should do something Like when we're really happy, doesn't it feel like we should do something about it? I find that very challenging when there's a lot of happiness. I feel like I have to do something because I feel happy. Or if you're feeling sad, you might feel like you need to do something, like distract yourself from it. But actually, with these various mind states, we don't have to do anything. The mind state, whether it's really wholesome or pleasant or really unwholesome or unpleasant, We don't have to do anything. We can just let it be what it is. And that's what mindfulness provides. That's what this path provides. And it's that uh, non-reactivity that allows us to be more intimate. And see, that's the missing ingredient. And that's often why mind states persist. As you said, Jim, they become ritualized. Because we don't know any other alternative. We haven't cultivated an alternative, which is to be present. So all we can do is react, and then the pattern of reaction becomes the ritual. This is how we process the grief. And we don't even get that we're starting to become invested in somebody who has a lot of grief to process. It becomes part of who we are. And in and because of that, we're, it will take longer probably, if ever, to move beyond it, to kind of process it, to really let it arise and unwind. So what we want to do instead is... Uh, relate to it in a different way and it's like this basic innocence we have to drop our interpretation of what it is that we're experiencing in the moment and just take it as a phenomena but not our understanding our understanding might convince us to be present but once we start opening we gotta leave behind what we think it is as a concept and turn to it as a moment-to-moment phenomena mental physical Phenomena, And often the body and mind, of course, are working together, especially with something like grief. Thanks for the good question. Greg? I want to go back to this trick you mentioned as far as -hmm. when I'm sitting and I have a um, strong contraction or whatever. You're saying to focus back on the body and the breath or something like that. And that's fine when I'm sitting. I can see how that would. But if I'm interacting with somebody else in real time, and as a result of that interaction, I have a strong reaction or attraction. Are you saying? Are you suggesting that I do the same thing in that moment? Because to me, it seems a little awkward. Yeah, it, yeah. It may not work on the fly like that. But what you might realize is that that when that strong feeling arises, or that strong emotion arises that you uh, you are identified with it you know you are reacting to it you are taking it as me mine you know and just that honesty is really nice because that honesty can lead to the next movement in the mind which is this is painful you know taking it personally is painful and I care about this pain and that that can soften our relationship to it and prevent some of the reactivity and and may allow us to sort of have this understanding that i need to step away from the situation in order to deepen or kind of change my way of relating to the strong stuff that's alive in me right now take a walk around the block go get a drink of water you know and then we can get with that space that distance we might get some perspective on the strong feeling that we have, It's taking it less personally, being less reactive, and then we might be able to respond more skillfully than we would right there in the moment. That's why it's so good to practice um, on a cushion, you know, or on a chair, doing your daily meditation practice, because we develop some skill then that will arise in those situations. But. Uh, the more dramatic the situation, the less, the more skill we're going to need to be able to handle that right there on the spot. Sometimes, of course, we can't escape. And then we just practice forgiving ourselves for whatever mess we set in motion. Maybe time for one more comment or question, if anybody has anything they would like to share with the group. Try to remember this week um, to catch, if you can, how being mindful of mind really does something powerful. And the purpose of seeing that is to gain confidence in the practice. We really want to see how transforming it is to have a moment, and it just—it can just literally be a moment or a couple mind moments. Presence, mind as mind. How, how really potent that is in terms of deepening understanding creating other possible ways of responding to the moment that wouldn't otherwise be there and so if we really have those moments I, I think you're going to notice that this this uh, experience of confidence like, like uh, Bhante Gunaratna says at the end of that paragraph he says uh, then you know that this mind can be used to gain wisdom. Wisdom, in in Buddhist terms, is just synonymous with freedom. Wisdom is freedom, just like ignorance is a life of suffering. A wise mind means we're not going to suffer, not in the same way at least. So let's just let go of the words and